Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast where we talk with experts as you build your worldview. I'm Maylily Lee. These podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at the site and subscribe or follow this podcast for our latest episodes. Coming up, the second episode of a four-part conversation with Anne Bradley, an economist who uses her worldview in studying economics. Today, Anne challenges the common interpretation of self-interest, arguing it's a force for good. She also looks at the role of business and free enterprise as a means of serving society and why profit is a good thing. Let's listen. Um, okay, now moving uh, on to the next section. And uh, Judaism and Christianity, historical reality narrative story. So we're thinking story kind of narrative. And not I don't think stories are false. I think they're true, but they're still narrative. And to me, that's when you use your reason uh, your, your God or otherwise given reason to look at the past and make sense of it. That's what humans do in creating narrative and story. So um, before we get to that part of it, when you think about the if we uh, Christian story or narrative, the presuppositional assumptions that you're making, uh, do you, would, you, would you talk about that truth, reality, time, space, free will, goodness, mm -hmm. evil, all that? Any comments? This is getting real heavy into philosophy, mm -hmm. and you have two or three minutes to talk about that if you want to. Yeah, happy to. The the presuppositions that we take, and and what's neat about if we is that we're theologians and economists coming together to try to be interdisciplinary and create this framework in which people can think through um, who they are and and what they're supposed to to do or how they're supposed to think about the world. And so what we start with is anthropology, meaning who are we and what, how did God, it's one thing to say we're made in God's image. We understand that, but what does it mean? So I'm just going to list a few things that it means. It means that we are not actually God, right? He can create something out of nothing. We can't do that. We live in a world of scarcity. We can create something out of something and we are called to do that. So that's one important point. I think the other important point is, um, we have purpose. So we're not, you know, wind up robots that you set off. Nobody winds us up in the day. So we have a filter by which we try to assess what's good for me. And we call this self-interest. Now, self-interest is different than greed, but we do say that everybody is self-interested, meaning they try to do what they think is best for them and they try to do it at the lowest possible cost. Um, and, and then the other thing is just that we're limited. We can't do everything on our own. So part of our anthropology is that we're social. And you see this in the image of God, the Trinity, right? A relational being. We are relational beings. So we're going to require a society that encourages community and relationships. So I think those are really important foundational aspects of our narrative, our framework, and our thinking about how do we talk to Christians in the 21st century about freedom and flourishing? We have to start with those principles of human anthropology. And because that tells you what we're gonna be capable of and what we're incapable of. And I think that it, that's where you have to start the conversation. I'm gonna ask for a, a shortish answer here, mm -hmm. but this is a follow-up question that's not on there. So it's not actually because your answers are too long. They're not, they're perfect. 
So don't you like go. I'm talking a lot. Don't you go a changing? Okay. Okay. But here's my short follow-up question, and I shouldn't ask this because I could blog it out and get credit for it. But if you're created in the image of God by God for a calling, by definition, you're not bad. Mm -hmm. Your self-interest <laughs> is actually good. Mm -hmm. Self-interest. Expand is, on that point. Self-interest is one of the most misunderstood concepts among everybody. I mean, my non-Christian students, it, it's confusing because it sounds like we're being greedy. And self-interest is just the way that you choose. In fact, it's what God created you to be self-interested. What does it mean? It means you're trying to live in to the things that benefit you. Here's the distinction. It benefits you to make Christ the center of all your decisions. That's in your self-interest. But that means you have to constrain yourself. You have to say no to things. You can't indulge every whim. Uh, and so self-interest is not about unmitigated greed. It's about what's the filter of your choices. And when Christ is the center of our self-interest, our self-interest has great benefits. The past, present, and future of the Christian narrative in the Bible. Um, do you feel like you can handle a, a, a kind of description of the narrative? that informs us as we think as Christians about the past. You know, Patrick Henry says, I only know one way to judge the future, but from my personal experience in the mm -hmm. past. So as Christians, what's that story? How would you summarize that? What's the story of the past? I'm not sure I understand the The story question. of the Bible uh, oh, from okay. Genesis forward oh. all the way through to Revelations. I see. Uh, what's, the, what's the story that informs us? Got it. Okay. Okay. I got it. Yeah. Um, so the story of scripture that informs how we live, I think there's a couple things that I would try to pull out there that are important. Um, and one is that the whole story fits together. Uh, it was written, um, to tell a story that's very consistent. So if you start with Genesis and you go to Revelation, you're given everything that you need and I think that story is very relevant for the modern world. I think we forget that. And that's why in our work, we really start, we hammer down on Genesis 1 and 2 because we get a lot of what we need to understand who we are. So Genesis tells us the story of our creation. It gives us meaning. Um, we get the creation mandate which, in which we have our purpose. And then we see very quickly, we were just talking about self-interest. We see what happens when our view of what's good for us gets distorted by sin. So we're given a choice. We're given freedom and agency to choose. Uh, and what happens when we choose sin? Well, the fall happens and it breaks lots of our relationships with ourself, with each other, with God, and with his creation. So we're told everything's going to be harder. Everything's going to be more difficult. Everything's going to be more painful, but you still got to do it, right? So the, the fall, I'm going to spend a lot of time, I guess, on the, the beginning of scripture, but the fall breaks and makes it harder for us to do what we're supposed to do, but it doesn't undo the mandate. Be fruitful and multiply it never goes away. So the rest of scripture gives us principles about that struggle of being fruitful and multiply. And we see many, many people that God chooses and they fall to all this sin, right? You look at David, you look at Solomon, you just see it through scripture. 
Um, you look at what Mary and Joseph are asked to do, and you just think God chooses sinful people who he knows are going to mess up, who he knows are going to fall to sin, right? Uh, and who he knows are people who look around and say, why on earth would God choose me to do this? That's the story after story after story. And what is the lesson from all that is that we got to be ready when God calls us because he's going to call ordinary people. Those people are going to question why they were ever asked to do anything for his purposes. We're all Davids, right? We're all, we all have these Goliaths that we're fighting. Um, and he's asked us to do that. And it's about obedience to that and the blessings that come from obedience. Uh, life is going to be more fulfilling when we do the hard things that God asks us to do. Life is hard. It's, it's, it's promised that it will be hard. Uh, we learn a lot about trials in scripture. And I think at the end of the story in scripture that we have is a glimpse into the future. So at if we, we talk a lot about not so much heaven, but we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, which is this idea that, you know, um, my uh, boss, Hugh Welshall, always says that kind of the truncated view of Christianity is to say, well, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved, and so I get saved, and then what happens? Well, I just I have my bus ticket, and I'm waiting on the bus to come, right? The bus is going to take me to heaven, and that's where it's, we're going to hang out on clouds, and, you know, we're going to be with angels. <laughs> you know, this version of heaven that you kind of learn in Sunday school that we need to go past. Uh, we don't talk about that. We talk about the new heaven and the new earth. When God restores his creation, shalom is achieved. And we get the best of all cultures, the best of all human creativity. And that's why at IFWE, we talk a lot about our work having eternal significance. You being an accountant, me being an economist, a teacher, an engineer, a janitor, that stuff is going to be redeemed. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to live and we're going to work and we don't know what that looks like. Will our families remain the same or be different? There's a lot of questions. But I think faithfulness to what God has called us into today will be redeemed, rewarded, and glorified when God makes all things new again. And then we live for eternity. So scripture really gives us an essence of who we are, the struggle in who we are because of our sin. But in this vision towards the future, we can see, we can have an idea of what it's going to be like to be reunited. And so that needs to inform all of our decisions about work and faith and life and family today. Fabulous. Okay. Impossible to do great, that in like great. two minutes. Sorry. No, no, no. I know. That, that's a ridiculous question. And you did a good job on it. Um, all right. Here's, here's one uh, uh, that we hear in the academic world all the time. And it, quite frankly, irritates me. It's the nicest way I can say it. But this thing of, oh, you're just... You love Adam Smith, and you think, you know, Northern Europe is good. That's just the Whig interpretation of history. Mm-hmm. What do you say? When, when you hear that, uh, you know, it's the Whig interpretation of history. What What's your response? I hear um, a lot of these comments about the Whig interpretation of history or, you know, uh, we shouldn't be imposing Western values on everybody else. Uh, it, this is kind of a... Um, a resurgent idea in the classroom, I would say. In fact, in some ways, I think you have to be careful um, about how you present the ideas of Adam Smith um, because, you know, is it just kind of um, some elite, you know, guy that lived in the Enlightenment who, you know, maybe was wrong and maybe, you know, we shouldn't follow what he said. And it's not all Adam Smith, but certainly what, what happened during the time of Adam Smith was remarkable in human history. I mean, absolutely remarkable. One of my favorite... Um, 
we're in an interview, so we're not showing graphs here, but one of my favorite graphs to look at that I try to talk about and show to people every time um, I have the chance is if you look at world income over the last 2000 years, we call it the hockey stick graph in economics because world income from AD one till about 1800 is zero. Uh, hovers at the zero line and then shoots up and it shoots up around the time of what we call the industrial revolution. I don't think that was inevitable. It wasn't inevitable that we were going to get profoundly rich. And it's not just rich people getting richer. It's the fact that we're sitting in a heated air conditioned room right now, having a conversation, ordinary people. How do we get such luxuries as air conditioning and heating when George Washington, who was richer, more famous, more powerful, more politically connected than I will ever be, didn't have a heater, he had a fire, right? He didn't even, in fact, when he was inaugurated, he only had one of his real teeth left in his mouth. I have all my teeth and I expect to have all my teeth for a long time, right? So what is the difference? That's not inevitable. For most of human history, most people lived at $100 or less. So it is actually shocking that that changed. What is it? It's about getting the ideas about who we are, about our position in society. You know, what was profound about the industrial revolution is that uh, work was good and ordinary people had something to offer in their work. That was an idea. And it was an idea that the reformers had. It was an idea that Adam Smith and David Hume had. So it was about a lot of people agitating for these ideas, but that wasn't enough. Those ideas had to be adopted and believed by people. And then they get incorporated into law. They get incorporated into how we view ourselves with respect to the government. Now there's no such thing as a divine right of kings, right? I mean, in this idea space, it's that you are just like me and you need to submit yourself to the rule of law in the same way I do. So I just, I think, why is your question important? Because it's not inevitable and it can reverse. We are not de destined to be free and rich forever. We got to fight for that. All right, let's keep moving. That was beautiful. Um, uh, this, this is another hard question maybe, but you've got the word right there on the book. Uh, defining capitalism, mm -hmm. how long has capitalism existed in your opinion? What I love about that question is I get different definitions and I get different starting points and they vary all over the map. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is a word that I do not like. Um, you might say, wow, that's kind of silly because it's on the front cover of your book. Um, in fact, when we were thinking about the book, I said, oh, I don't think we should use the word capitalism. Uh, but the whole point is people are really starting to question capitalism again. Uh, they have, I think, forever. Uh, so we said, okay, we're going to deal. We're just going to get roll our sleeves up and get dirty and talk about what capitalism means. Uh, capitalism is a term that originated, was originated by Karl Marx. It's a derogatory term. If you know anything about Marx, he was someone who uh, was very worried about excessive wealth accumulation. He believed work was inherently alienating. So when I get into a commercial relationship with my employer, there's a probability, a likelihood that I'm going to be alienated from my work and I'm just going to kind of be a pawn, right? A cog in this machine and there's no fulfillment in it. This is very different than the narrative that we talk about when we talk about work. And so Karl Marx says, you know, this is the dirty capitalists. Those are the holders of capital. That's where this term comes into being. Uh, capitalism as a system, what do we mean? And I want to be very clear about what the economic definition of this. The economic definition of capitalism is the private ownership of the means of production. Now, what does that mean? It means that private individuals 
as firms, right, hold property rights and they make investment decisions based on their assessment of what people want and need, meaning um, the United States government doesn't own all the farms. The United States government doesn't own all the manufacturing plants, right? Apple is a private company and they make stuff. How do they make those decisions? Well, they kind of try to figure out what consumers want. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. So capitalism is about that system of profit and loss. What's profoundly important about capitalism, which Marx didn't understand, is that it's driven by consumers. It's driven by you and I. See, if none of us go into Apple, the store, it's not gonna exist anymore, or they're gonna have to change the way they do things. That's the power of consumers. It's very different than what Marx thought a capitalist system looked like. So capitalism as a system hasn't been around that long. It's very much correlated with kind of the onset of the Industrial Revolution. And I would even say there is no system today that we can observe that's perfectly capitalistic, right? Meaning, you know, all individuals privately hold the means of production. So the, so the word, my next question is, so the word's problematical? <coughs> problematical? I think it is. I hate it. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, you're meeting the guy who hates the word more than anyone else in the effing world. Okay, <laughs> I'm just telling you that. Okay, but it's is it? Um, but I love it, so mm -hmm. I have a real problem, personally. <laughs> so the question is: Is the word problematical? Is, is the word problematical? How? Why? What? How would you describe that? The reason I do not like the word capitalism is because it means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. So if we were to go out on the street and do a you know, man on the spot interview and say, what does capitalism mean? You would have every answer under the sun from the one I just gave, which is the economic answer, to, well, it's the rich getting richer at the expense of the poor, or you know, it's, it's um, you know, a, a lot of different things. And so that's why I don't like the word, because I think when you're saying, Let's talk about capitalism. Immediately, in your mind, there's an image, there's an idea, there's a definition. And so we're all, when we talk about capitalism, we're all starting from a different place. And our biases are loaded into that. I prefer to talk about a market-based society. Where are markets allowed to operate and when are they constrained? And what's the range over that? And that's a society, you know, that's kind of less political or less ideological. So I think the problem with the word capitalism is it incites all this anger and emotion, and then it's hard to talk about whether it's good or not. All right, you touched on this uh, question, the next question, earlier a little bit. Um, and, uh, but it's clear that the centrality of work and business and commerce is important to IFWI's mission. Um, what is, so I'm going to go to the last question in this one. What is the business's proper goal or function as a Christian? How do you, what is that goal? What are we trying to do as we go about our work? Is there one goal that's, or two, or what? I think there's a broad goal that business has from a Christian perspective, which is, you know, um, I hear some people say I'm pro-business. I don't like that either because I don't know what, it means, does it, does it mean you're pro-big business? Does it mean you're pro-small business? Um, I think what business is about is service. So entrepreneurship uh, is what we really wanna talk about. What do businesses do? Well, in theory, if we're taking the biblical point of view and then we're layering in kind of the economic freedom point of view, then businesses are there to serve other people and they only get rewarded. They only get that profit if they do what consumers want them to do. 
what customers want them to do. So business isn't good for its own sake. It's a means to an end, right? And the means to an end is giving us things that we couldn't do on our own. So I mentioned George Washington earlier. I mean, this poor guy had one tooth left, right? He's like a big, powerful guy. Why? Because he didn't have Listerine and toothbrushes and toothpaste and all these things that ordinary people get easy access to today. That's because of entrepreneurship. It's because people don't want their teeth falling out of their head when they're 25, right? It's because people don't want to die of a, of a tooth infection that a root canal can fix when you're 30. And so business is about serving others. And it's in a commercial society, the most effective way that we've figured out to date to serve strangers. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that after we keep moving. We're doing great. Um, okay, this is, this is zeroing in a little bit on the churches themselves, the institutions that, uh, uh, and, and I guess what I'm saying is, there wouldn't really be a, a, a market position, to use a business term, for if we, if the churches were very good at explaining commerce business work from the pulpit, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, so I guess the question is, is there a disconnect between the institution of churches and professional pastors and what they're telling the, the public? Is mm -hmm. there some dissatisfaction out there or what? Yeah, okay. So to me, this stems back to the problem that we've observed in the church over, I would say, the last 150 years, which is this sacred-secular divide. So you'll hear your pastor talk a lot about taking the uh, youth group on a missions trip, and this is a good thing, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing, um, but you'll never hear them talk about, you know, what can business, what, what can the people in the um, congregation do who are business leaders? How do they think about running their business in a godly way? Or how do they think about their positive contributions to the community? I think part of it is that pastors don't, are not trained in seminary to think about those things. Um, but I think it's more fundamentally about this, pastors care about the sacred. Are you reading your Bible enough? Are you are you donating enough? Are you donating your time? Are you you know teaching Sunday school and and they're looking for other pastors that they can kind of help mentor. But then that leaves the rest of us who go to a job that's quote unquote secular secular from nine to five. What are where's the counsel that we get from the church? And I think it's just not there. I don't think this is from bad intentions, but I think that, that the pastors themselves are not being equipped to think about. Um, reuniting that divide, that all work is sacred. And so what we would say at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics is that if you, God calls you to, to be a pastor, you should do that with integrity, and you should listen to the call, and you should be obedient. But what if God also calls someone else to be a hedge fund manager on Wall Street, which is kind of vilified right now in our culture? You should also do that with integrity and excellence. And you're not less... You don't have less dignity. You don't have less purpose and more important. Your work isn't less important. It's just different. That is a radical idea if you tell that to a lot of pastors and seminarians. So I really think we need to get these ideas into the seminary. Because if all of work matters, then all work matters. And then pastors need to be communicating with 90% of their congregation. Most of the people who sit in the pews on Sunday morning are not pastors. And they don't work in the church. Most of them work in the world. And they need to have a connection to scripture with that. And they need to be counseled on that. 
has this been a problem since inception for the church, do you think? Um, uh, this, this lack of connection to the workspace. Um, I don't think it's been a problem since the inception. If you read the Reformers, if you read Calvin, for example, he talks a lot about vocation and work. And I think that there's modern theologians that are really trying to bring um, these ideas back as well. Os Guinness um, would be one, but there, there are others who are really trying to say we need to reunite this connection. So I think that there's reasons to be optimistic, but we need more voices in that space. So no, I don't think it's existed forever, perhaps. I do think within Christian circles, though, I mean, I can't say I, I didn't live a thousand years ago, but it's probably always been the case that the priests and the pastors have had kind of a different um, view. There's a different view that we cast on them than, you know, the business guy, the lawyer, you know, the accountant. Um, so maybe they've always been held in different lights, but I really do think that the, if you go back and read the work of the reformers, there was a strong call to not do that. Um, and we've lost that, I think, over the past hundred years or so. All right, here's, here's the question you get a thousand times, but I want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Prophets. Hmm. Good, bad, indifferent. How do you explain it in your worldview? What do you have to say about it? Prophets are great. <laughs> this is my short answer to that. Prophets are leftovers. So that's what I always want people to think about when they think about the word prophet. Prophet means leftover. Okay, so it means what's the residual? What's left? And we always tend to think about profit financially. So we think about what's left over in our Bank of America account right at the end of the month. And that's fine. That is part of profit. But if we are created for a purpose and we are stewards of what God has gifted us with, then everything is for profit. You want to profit your time. You want to profit your talent. You want to profit your money. What does profiting your time mean? It just means I have leftover hours, right? I live a longer life, so I have leftover years. Uh, profiting my talent means um, I have more to give. So profit is inherently a good thing. Now, I will say the only qualifier here is how do you obtain profit? And we can't have that conversation without having a conversation about capitalism and free markets and what's the role of the state. Because it's possible in some societies for people to quote unquote profit to get something by stealing it by taking it, by oppressing others. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about legitimately earned profit, which can only come from serving. So it's that idea of the business guy as the entrepreneur or gal, right? Who serves, who's filling a gap, filling a need. And when that person serves me, I have more time. I have more leftover. You've been listening to Ann Bradley, Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies in Washington. In episode three, Anne discusses capitalism and socialism from a Christian viewpoint and the role of profit and markets as they relate to poverty. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Anne Bradley. Subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts and visit us at praxiscircle.com for building worldviews.